0: Hi, I'm Len Epp from LeanPub, and in this Lean Front Matter podcast, I'll be interviewing Katrina Clokey. Katrina is a test practice manager based in Wellington, New Zealand. As well as being a popular blogger and international conference speaker, she is also the editor of Testing Trapeze Magazine, which you can find at com. You can follow her on Twitter at Katrina underscore tester and read her blog at katrinatester.blogspot.ca, which is where, where I found it. Katrina is the author of the LeanPub book, A Practical Guide to Testing in DevOps. Her book addresses the evolving challenges for for software testers within organizations, including how risk tolerance can change when products can be tested in production and how testing should look in an environment with automated build and deployment pipelines. In this interview, we're going to talk about Katrina's professional interests, her book, and at the end, we'll talk about her experiences uh, as a self-published author. So thank you, Katrina, for being on the podcast.
1: It's no problem. Thank you for inviting me.
0: And I should say, um, uh, I'm here on uh, Friday afternoon, but Katrina's um, uh, doing this on Saturday morning, so I wanted to say an extra special thanks for you taking some time on your weekend to do this.
1: It's no problem.
0: Um, As I think you know, I I like to start these interviews by asking people for their origin story. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit how you first became interested in software and how you ended up in the testing world.
1: Sure. So I came into software at university. I hadn't had a lot of exposure to computer-related things before that, um, and I decided to enroll in an e-commerce degree, which was right at the time when the dot-com boom was happening. And the my local university was offering a course which was a mixture of management and finance papers with a little bit of... Computing um, with the idea that the degree that you got out of it would be suited to this e commerce kind of environment. And in my first semester, I was taking, uh, I think, three management papers and an intro to computer science. And I really loved uh, the intro to computer science paper. And I decided to switch degree in my first few weeks at university. And Went into a computing and mathematical science degree, majored in software engineering, and started a career as a developer. Um, I worked as a developer for a little while and I found it to be not that fun. (laughs) So, when I was at university, coding was a very collaborative activity and there was a lot of team based projects, and I found the lab environment at university really interesting. And when I went into the workforce, uh, the organization where I was working had quite a waterfall approach to their development. And so it felt like someone gave me requirements and I sat in isolation and typed up some stuff and made something work. And then I kind of handed it over to someone else and then got the next thing. So I took a role as a solution delivery engineer, primarily because I got to do a lot of travel doing that. And that role was installing and testing mobile phone networks for Central and Latin America and Asia Pacific from an office that was based in New Zealand when I wasn't traveling. And that was really fun. I did that for a few years. And then I wanted to stay home and I needed to change jobs. And I was trying to think about, what I wanted to do because I tried development and it didn't really appeal and the role I was in only really existed because of the geographic region that we were trying to cover. So I thought about what I liked and what I didn't like in my brief professional experience to that point and decided that I'd go for a testing role. And that was about eight years ago now. So testing for me was a conscious choice. I think a lot of people say they fell into software testing. For me, I chose to go into testing and it's an area I really enjoy. I like testers as connectors in an organization. There's lots of communication with other people and I like the investigative nature. So when I was a developer, you just had to find one way to get it to work. And once you'd found that way, you were kind of done. Whereas in testing, you get to continue to pick apart, you know, what about this? What about this? And I really like that kind of mode of exploring things.
0: And if you could, um, if you were starting out now, you said um, you you started um, university around the time of the dot-com boom, Um, would you uh, study computer science again? Or do you think you would just, you know, dive straight in and sort of do training on your own?
1: I would definitely study again. I really enjoyed my degree. Um, While I was at university, I got the opportunity to do some summer internships in the research labs and that led to me going to a conference while I was still an undergraduate and getting to connect with a lot of people and learn a bit about the broader industry and after I left university a friend of mine and I met up with some of our old professors and it was really good to reflect on university not just being about what you are taught but it being about teaching you how to learn. So in computing and IT things are changing so fast that getting skills that teach you how to learn something is really important like you need to be able to research new ideas and understand how they might apply to what you're doing and then take those ideas and alter them for your context and all of that I think I got from my study
0: and um as one of the I'm gonna bring up I believe you work for the Bank of New Zealand um Uh, That's your current employer. And the reason I the the reason I bring it up is that often when I I like to ask people the question I just asked you, because people have such, I I find about half of the people that I ask say, I would do it again, and half say I wouldn't. Um, uh, But one consistent answer across both groups is if you're going to work for a certain type of big organization, or if you plan to work for a certain type of big organization, that having a computer science degree is a requirement. Um, do you, is, is that true for, for your employer?
1: It isn't. Mm. So we hire testers from a lot of different backgrounds. We get a lot of people applying from within the bank who have very strong domain knowledge and banking expertise. We get... Um, for want of a better word, uh, manual testers who are looking to switch into automation and they have a very rich testing experience in a lot of different domains, but they don't know how to code. And we also get people with a computer science background who in some cases have never been in testing. And so we try and balance out within our teams the different people, the experiences of different people so that the team is a rounded skill set, but the individuals kind of bring their own strengths to that.
0: That's, um, that's really interesting, actually. It reminds me of a, a post that you wrote um, relatively recently, I think, that I found when I was researching for this interview about a recruitment effort that you were involved in. Um, yes. And I really, I really enjoyed it because um, often, you know, people – uh, who are starting out their careers, and some of the people who are listening to this podcast I think are are in that stage um, of life um, for them, recruitment seems like this very mysterious and opaque process um, and scary um, when you 're on the you know being recruited end of things and I was wondering if you could just talk a little bit about uh, what you wrote about in that in that post and, and what that recruitment effort was like i mean I, I remember Uh, part of the challenge was how many people you needed to recruit and how many applicants you had.
1: Yeah. So that particular round of recruitment, we advertised, we had two adverts running. One was for an infrastructure tester and one was for an automation tester. And behind those advertisements, we had nine vacancies and we ended up with 150 applicants, which was quite a lot. Uh, And a little unusual in our market to get that big of a response and we had people apply from a graduate level to changing careers to swapping disciplines within IT to experienced people who could do the roles you know straight away and For that round of recruitment, we decided to trial a bulk approach to interviewing, which was a new thing for us. So the candidate experience would change a little bit. Our normal process would be we send out some screening questions because often it's really hard to tell personality and communication from a CV. And if you're screening 150 CVs, they start to feel like the same CV over and over again. So once we have done the screening questions, normally the candidate would come in for a one hour behavioral interview with a manager and a coach. And then if they were successful from that interview, they would come back to do a one hour practical interview with two of our testers.
0: And, what's, and, a, and what's, a, what's a behavioral interview?
1: Oh, sorry. So um, it would be a set of questions around your background in history, how you like working in a team, maybe how you problem solve and challenges you've faced, how you like to learn. So trying to find out about you and your style, I guess, for want of a better word, whereas the practical, we'd be looking more at your skills and your ability to demonstrate those skills. That's the distinction, I guess.
0: Yeah, no, that, that totally makes sense. And it reminds me of some experiences I've had in the past. I just uh, wasn't, I guess, given the name of what type of <laughs> interview I was being subjected to. I, I do remember taking, um, in fact, certain sort of personality tests. Um, which were easy to game. Um, yes. <laughs> um, and it sounds like um, uh, your process didn't involve that kind of exercise.
1: No, we don't generally do the the test approach in that way. Um, we did it once only where we had two people who, and we only had one role, and we ran the tests and they, we're useless, actually, and we ended up hiring both of the people anyway <laughs> uh, so no, not tests
0: and is there actually, um, that, that reminds me is there or, or leads me to to ask is there a specific type of personality that one looks for in a in a successful tester or someone who might be a successful tester
1: Yes and no so in our organization, we run. The particular area where I'm most involved in recruitment for, we have quite mature agile teams. And I live in Wellington in New Zealand, which is the home of our government. And so there are a lot of large government departments in Wellington who work in quite a traditional way. And what we're looking for in those behavioral interviews is people who show we we feel show an understanding of what the environment might be like but also to a degree a kind of natural um appetite for working in a collaborative and flexible and slightly uncertain environment and when you talk to people it's interesting how quickly there are little red flags around people who enjoy you know a structured work day and having their tasks given to them and def- well defined uh,
0: maybe uh, I, I mean I think you you answered that 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 question um, that last question quite well um, so um, uh, I guess my response to it would be um, i've always wondered I, I've interviewed a few people who are testers for this podcast um, you know as a you know person working for a startup I do some you know Ad hoc kind of testing myself, but is there something particularly kind of curious and independent that might make a person a good tester? Because you really need to, I, as I understand it, I mean, you know, part partly it is not very structured, and it is it or it doesn't isn't necessarily very structured, and does involve a lot of kind of imagination.
1: Yes, that is what we look for. In our practical interview, it can be quite hard to tell in the behavioral whether someone truly is curious and will go looking for things. And if you're interviewing a tester, they'll always say that they're curious. Uh, But when you put them in a practical, we have an exercise where there's a small really awful web application, which I feel comfortable saying because I wrote it, and we have a fake story with some acceptance criteria, and we ask the person to test that that application, and the two testers who are with that person, one of them acts as the business analyst, and one of them acts as the developer, and they kind of role play through what it would be like for that person to be testing a story. And it's really interesting how many people... This this particular application can work, and it can work by the acceptance criteria, but there are a lot of problems with it, and it's a good way of weeding out the people who will test that the acceptance criteria are met and then feel happy and the people who will go beyond that and look for the ways that the application is faulty and broken
0: yeah that's uh that that's really interesting um uh it, it does uh, it's um it sort of seems fitting that if you're looking for mistakes if you expect to be given concrete instructions you kind of don't understand what you're up to yes Um, you know, if people knew in advance where the mistakes were, they wouldn't, they wouldn't need you, um, to be doing what you're doing. Um, speaking of, um, of, of creativity, um, uh, you, uh, do a bunch of things outside, um, your regular work, uh, for your job. Um, one of those is that you, uh, I believe created and you edit, um, the Testing Trapeze magazine. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about how you got started, um, doing that.
1: Sure. So... I used to work for a consultancy and we were employed as full-time employees and the consultancy would then put us out onto client site for short-term engagements. And one summer, maybe four years ago now, I guess, myself and two of my colleagues all happened to be in our home base of the office at the same time. So during January, February is the New Zealand summer. And if you finish a contracting engagement just before Christmas, the likelihood of you picking something up before kind of early February is relatively low because everyone is on summer vacation. And so the three of us were sitting together in the office and talking through what could we do to keep ourselves busy, essentially, and to address our frustration with the wider testing industry. And for us, at that time, there wasn't a testing magazine for our part of the world that we felt was really reflecting the calibre of people we had working in our industry. And so we decided to create one because we thought, how hard could that be? And it was quite a naive start, but in fairness, once we'd done one, we have actually settled into a little bit of a pattern and it's not too hard. Uh, The hardest thing now after four years is continuing to find people through the networks that we have um, and especially we we run the magazine with two New Zealand contributors, two Australian contributors and one international in each edition and I'm in New Zealand so finding people from my own country is relatively easy but finding people from Australia can be a little bit of a challenge as my um, networks over there aren't as strong. Um, but yeah, it it started basically because serendipitously, three of us did not have a client engagement one summer. <laughs>
0: um, speaking of networking, you also have the WeTest conference. Um, can you talk a little bit about that and how that got started?
1: Yeah, so uh, how did this get started? Um, I went to something called a Kiwi workshop on software testing, In maybe 2011 or 2012, it was a wee while ago, and it was a two-day peer conference where we had about 20 testers on a Friday and a Saturday having discussion-based conversations about different testing topics, and I had never experienced something like that before, and I wondered why it was only open to 20 people by invitation only. And so I messaged a colleague of mine who was at the event and said, surely this is something we could run more regularly and for in a more open way so that other people got to experience this. And that's how we test started. We just made a meetup, picked a topic, shared an invite and said we'd really like to discuss this if you're keen to discuss it too, come along so our first event we had maybe 16 people and that was really exciting and now I think we have 900 people in the group and in a week and a bit we're running a conference which has just over 200 attendees in Wellington and then we're also running the same program in Auckland where we have another 250 people coming so it really over the past four or five years has grown a lot Um, is now in a couple of cities in New Zealand and is one of the bigger communities for testers here to discuss and learn and get excited about being part of this industry.
0: Oh, well, fantastic. It sounds like a a, a big success. And then, then there, there's a, a lot of demand, obviously, um, for people to get together and, and talk. Um, uh, is that is that perhaps partly because it's a Wellington? I mean, I mean, I know you've got something in Auckland as well, but is it partly because Wellington is a government town and you've got a lot of um, uh, people working in departments where they, they have formal testing roles?
1: Um, I do think there are... There are a lot of testers. Uh, I feel like when I look at the meetup groups and communities in American and European cities, that they're not as big as I would have expected, and I do wonder if we have a disproportionately high number of testers in New Zealand. Just maybe we're slightly more risk averse, or. Yeah, I, I'm not sure. So, yeah, part of it could be that there's more more of us. I think potentially <clears throat> the geography here helps as well. So I um, have heard of the Atlanta group moving towards virtual sessions because apparently commuting around Atlanta – Can take hours, Mm -hmm. and that's not really something that applies so much in New Zealand. Like to go to something in the middle of the city, you might have up to a half an hour commute, but it would never be prohibitive to you participating in something. So potentially the close geography of our cities is helpful.
0: Uh, That's um that's really interesting. It reminds me. I think there was an article in the New York Times about um driving in Atlanta and, you know, the advent of self-driving cars and how it can actually improve society a great deal. But I don't – that's a topic for another discussion, (laughs) I think. Um, uh, Before um, I start asking you about questions about your book, A Practical Guide to Testing in DevOps, um, I I just wanted to make a statement or or little uh, explanation to um, people listening about, you know – Testing of software can often seem like a rather arcane subject, but um, software uh, is eating the world um, and uh, drives uh, not only the sort of you know apps we use in our day to day lives but a lot of the decisions that are made about how our lives are are structured and how our communities are structured um, and so testing is is a really important activity and how how software is tested has a really impact on our lives and just um, yesterday it the news broke of a um, software breach a security breach for this company called Equifax and something like one hundred and forty three million Americans had their uh, social security numbers and other information about them released um, so it's actually a very serious topic um, and uh, not not that I need to say that too um, <laughs> Katrina, or to anyone that she works with, especially working for um, a bank. Um, and I wanted to ask you uh, first if you could perhaps um, define what DevOps is. I know you have a section devoted to that in your book, um, and if you could just maybe explain to people, for the sake of, for the purposes of um, your discussion in your book, what you mean by DevOps.
1: Yep, I find it a little hard to describe without being to draw, being able to draw the picture so basically devops is the intersection of development and operations and that manifests in an organization where developers are sharing their practices and knowledge towards operations so potentially coding skills source control Skills that are used in infrastructure as code and operations are sharing their knowledge and practices back towards development. So, in building dashboards or on demand environments, and there's that exchange and flow of information. So, it's a culture shift and it's a change in the tools that we use um, to develop software quickly and try to reduce some of the risk in releasing
0: and so it's it's sort of the you know there's conventionally there are people who sort of write the software and there are people who are who deploy and sort of manage the deployed software and this is these two groups sort of working in concert um correct yeah okay okay um uh one thing you write about in your book is um a test strategy retrospective, um, and I wanted to ask you uh, what you have to say about the concept of a test strategy. What is a, a test strategy? Is that uh, uh, forgive me? These like, are
1: hard naive. questions now.
0: <laughs> <laughs> sorry, sorry, it's, it's um, because I come like, from is, a naive position. So
1: no, no, okay. What is a test strategy? So usually, it's not enough for the tester to say, oh, I'm really curious about this thing you've given me. People want a little bit more information about how you're going to spend your time, what you're going to look for, what types of activity, and what types of investigation you might be undertaking against the application, what the person might get back from you at the end of your work. And so a test strategy, is to capture that. So to be able to communicate to someone in a little bit more detail, whereabouts you plan to go and investigate, and what they might expect back from you at the end of it. Really broadly speaking, that's what a test strategy is. Yeah.
0: Um. And is it uh, is is. I mean, there are so many different groups that are involved. And I, I know from the images uh, in your book that you often have the tester at the center of all of these different groups. Um, and I was just, I wanted to know, uh, do do testers often have a lot of um, say in what, um, you know, requirements they need to meet or or are they, are they often on the receiving end of a bunch of different groups' you know, interests and messaging?
1: I think a good tester is both. So they are often on the receiving end, but also they have the ability to influence what they're getting. And so generally it will feel like people are giving you a lot of stuff and asking you to do a lot of different things, but if you can promote the types of things that you want to do, or that you want other people to have done, so that your workload shifts a little bit, generally you can do that too. So it's I. That's one of the facets facets of testing I really like is that um, the social game of it almost and how you can change what your role is by essentially building individual relationships around you and changing the way that those people interact with you and the information they give you and what they might expect back from you as well. I don't know if that was really an answer, no, but yes. Yeah. No
0: I, <laughs> I think there's actually a lot, a lot behind that. Um, has, has, I mean, uh, one question I have I, is, is do you think that um, within, say, you know, a conventional large organization has have attitudes towards testing changed in say the last ten years?
1: It varies by organization. I think there are some traditional organizations who aren't particularly aware of anything that's happening in the wider software industry. Uh, I was just yesterday I visited a government department and I was astonished. I asked who had heard of the testing pyramid and two people in a room of 40 raised their hand and that's something that's been around for a long time and there's just no awareness of it and I was truly a little bit baffled by that and so I think it depends on the amount of engagement an organization has with the wider industry as to whether their perception of a role and what that person should be doing, how much that changes is going to be based on what they see happening elsewhere and if they're not seeing anything then I don't think they do change what they what they're expecting Mm
0: -hmm. um one really interesting thing I came across in your book was um and again coming from a position position of naivete I mean I, I confess I would have been one of those people who didn't raise their hands Um, about what the testing pyramid is. Um, uh, um... So
1: I I should clarify, I was in a room of testers. Like it was a testing meeting. There were 40 testers in the room and only two of them knew what that was. But yeah, sorry, continue.
0: Oh, no, that's that's fine. (laughs) And the the really interesting thing I came across was uh, you talk about machine learning. Um, And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about, uh, I mean, perhaps that and automation and how, Uh, That's affecting uh, the testing of software and, 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 you know, testing of software quality now and going forward.
1: So machine learning is something I find really interesting and only know a tiny amount about. And there's two ways that it's changing testing. So one is we as humans, need to test a piece of software that uses machine learning algorithms to determine what it's going to do. And then the other way is that machine learning becomes how we test an application. So I think the example in the book, um, King, who write the Candy Crush games, have created this machine learning based testing so that it um determines all the different routes of winning the game and can quickly test that a particular level of Candy Crush is still functioning properly using these machine learning algorithms, which is really interesting. Um so they both both ways that it could impact on the work that we're doing brings a different set of challenges. Um at the CAST conference last year, uh, they had Nicholas Carr come and speak, and he spoke a little bit about the effects of automation and machine learning on on humans and how it, how it changes what we, the way that we learn, and the skills we have. Um, and that was a really interesting talk, which I'm not going to even attempt to summarize, but you could go and look that up. Um, yeah, so I see, I see lots of interesting things happening. I haven't yet had any direct experience with these things, um, but it's definitely something I'm uh, reading about and looking out for and trying to learn from what other people are doing.
0: Um, one of the things I really enjoyed about your book was the uh, very clear um, – definitions and descriptions you gave for certain terms of art. Um, uh, And, you know, again, one of the things I just find so interesting about this, about the testing space is that there's all this work going on in the background for the things that make our lives go properly um, (laughs) that the rest of us are, you know, not necessarily aware of. And one of the um, concepts that you describe is that of a canary release. And I was wondering if you wouldn't, if you wouldn't mind talking a little bit about that idea.
1: Sure. So a canary release was named because of the way that miners used to determine whether there were any noxious gases in their coal mine or whatever type of mine. Um, They would take a canary down with them underground, and if the canary stopped singing, they knew that they needed to get out. So a canary release in software is releasing the software to a small set of the users. And if the canary dies, as in if the users experience a lot of issues or have a very negative reaction to the change, um, then they can get out of that release and they can kind of roll back that change from that group and iterate and try and find something that will work better try another canary, and when the canary keeps singing, um, roll it out to kind of the wider group of people who might be using the application.
0: And there's also the concept of dark launching, which is maybe a little bit more complicated than, than the canary release concept, and I was wondering if you could talk a little bit, bit about that. What What is a, a dark launch?
1: So dark launching as I understand it, is putting all the code out, but in a way that it's not visible to the user. So if you were creating a new workflow in your application and maybe the entry point to that workflow was that the user was clicking on a button to go into this flow, you would not release the button, but you would release everything else. And so that code would be in production if you knew how to get to it, you could go and have a look at it and make sure that it was functioning, um, but people wouldn't be using it, and so you could tell maybe if that code was going to have any negative impact. Maybe you were worried about releasing it or configuring it or whatever, and then when you're happy that it's stable and there, you can switch on, I guess, kind of turn the light on, <laughs> the Put the button there so that people can find that, that new thing that's been there all along. So, yeah, dark launches, um, putting the stuff there, but not turning the light on so people can see it.
0: Right. And the, the idea, uh, I gather, is that um, you can launch code that can, even if it's not being used by users, can potentially break other parts. Of, yes. of, of your app or, 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 whatever it is you're up to. Um, yep. yeah, it's such a, I mean, again, I, I hadn't heard that. I, I knew that I had the concept in my mind, but I hadn't heard the term before. Um, yep. and just found it fascinating. Um, uh, moving on to, um, the sort of specifics of, of writing and publishing a book. Um, I noted that you wrote your book using our in-browser editor. Uh, i did with leanpub flavored markdown for the formatting and yeah for those listening you know we've over the years we've built a number of different ways of writing books um using leanpub um and that's been in response to uh you know our us watching authors and talking to authors uh, just like this and i was wondering uh katrina if you wouldn't mind uh explaining a little bit about why you chose that that mode of writing rather than say dropbox or github or something like that
1: To be honest, I didn't know that I could do it any other way, so I decided to write a book as a New Year's resolution, and I signed up to LeanPub, and on your very front page, it says, start writing now, and I was like, okay, and I clicked that button, and it took me to the in-browser editor, and so I assumed that was how I started to write now, and so I did, (laughs) and... (laughs) It was only when I had published the book and I wanted to create a sample chapter and I spoke to someone from LeanPub and I said, how do I do this? And they said, oh, if you have written the book using GitHub or Dropbox, here's how you do it. And I said, oh, I didn't even know i could do that like i used this thing and they said oh sorry you can't make a sample chapter that way and i was like oh so i i chose that way purely because it was effectively marketed through your website and it seems like the easiest way to go
0: oh well thanks thanks for that feedback (laughs) i haven't heard that that before um uh Yeah. And did you, um, were you familiar? I'm sorry, sorry for the the very detailed question, but it, it is helpful to people who are thinking about starting out to write, write themselves. Um, did you, were you familiar with Markdown, uh, when you got started?
1: I had, so yes, um, the wiki that we used to use at one of my old jobs was using Markdown. So that was okay. Um, but I also had to reference the manual quite a few times, um, when I wanted to do kind of quirky things that I didn't know how to do. But the manual is awesome, actually. Kudos for your manual. Um, I could always find what I wanted in there.
0: Well, um, thanks, thanks for the compliment. I mean, we can't, we can't take all the credit. I mean, one of the um, great things about uh, working with authors is that they pay attention to words. Um, <laughs> and so over the course of years, I mean, we've had people like say there's a, there's a typo in, you know, paragraph 86. Um, <laughs> and so that's been, that's been hammered at by a lot of um, uh, very smart and meticulous people. So, but, but thank you. Um, uh, actually, I wanted to ask you a, a sort of actually a higher level question. Um, uh, you have a, a blog post where you talk at length about the pricing model um, that you chose for your book. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that and about what you, you know, the interactions you've had with other people about the choices that you've made.
1: Sure. So I wrote the book primarily because I wanted the people in my own organization to have the book. And when I started to write it, it quickly became apparent through Twitter, especially, that a bunch of other people wanted to read it. And I thought, okay. <laughs> uh, but I still wanted the people in my own organization to read it, and I was pretty sure that they weren't going to pay for it. And I wanted them to have no excuse about why they couldn't download it and and engage in the material. And then I started thinking, well, so I thought, okay, initially at least free has to be an option. And then I started thinking about... In the broader testing community, how many people I knew who would look at a book and especially an ebook with a price on it and rationalize in their head that that was why they weren't going to download and read what was in there. And I guess I felt that it was more important to me that people would read it and learn a little bit about how the industry is changing around us than to opt out because they felt that they couldn't afford it. And so, yeah, I decided to set what I think is a fair price of, uh, I think it's 14.99 US, um, but to leave free as being the minimum and when I wrote the blog post, which was a couple of weeks ago now, um, it was roughly at one in five who were choosing to pay something. Um, and some people paid the recommended and some paid more and some paid less. Um, and But then four out of five were taking it for free. Um, I know some of them were definitely in my organization. Um, but the other thing I'm observing Uh, is that a lot of people uh, outside of kind of the main areas that you might think about software being developed are engaged in the book and reading the book. So I've had people in South America and Africa, um, Pakistan, like those type of countries where I think potentially – um, even if you work in IT, maybe you don't have the level of disposable income to invest in things like this. And then I started to think, oh, well, that's quite a cool side effect as well. Like, So I have had some feedback from people in the community saying that it shouldn't be free and that it undervalues the work that I've done and that um, I've had women saying that they particularly think as a woman I shouldn't undervalue what I'm doing um, but for me the flip side is that if it was pay only a proportion of people who might otherwise want to learn about this um, wouldn't have the option to and so yeah I've left it left it how it is and we'll see how it goes and I, the other thing for me probably is that the money is kind of a nice bonus. Uh, I wasn't ever relying on this as a source of income. Yeah.
0: Yeah. It's really, I, one thing I really appreciated about your post and about your answer just now is, you know, speaking to the complexities around, um, pricing, um, and in particular, um, the complexities around, uh, you know, trying to speak to a global audience, um, We've had authors, for example, who, you know, do set the minimum price to a higher value than free, um, but who actually specifically note in their about the book section, hey, if you're from a part of the world where, you know, this, or just you personally are in a situation where this, even the minimum price is too high for you, you know, get in touch um, and I can give you a coupon or something like that. Mm. Um, uh, And it is, it is very interesting to see you know, the ways people relate to prices that are set. Um, you know, you can get, I'm, I'm sure you've encountered this, where there are people who say, well, it sounds like you've encountered this, where people who, if you don't make the minimum price free, they're like, what are you trying to do to me? Um, <laughs> and then there are other people who say, if you set the minimum price to free, yeah, you're, you're, you know, sending the wrong message or something like that. And there's, you know, it's part of the, part of the um, challenge of putting yourself out there and creating something. Is uh, you know engaging with these? You can't please all the people uh, at any particular time. um, Realities Um, for sure. Um, uh, so the last question I always like to ask uh, in these interviews is, um, you know, we're here talking, uh, and if you have anything that, if there's anything on Leanpub that we could build for you that we haven't built or if there's anything that's broken that we could fix uh what would that be Ooh. um
1: i would have liked to be able to make a sample chapter from the in-browser editor um which i hadn't thought about at all and only when people started asking me for it i realized that i had no idea how to do that um Generally, everything worked really well. I think the only other thing I encountered with the in-browser editor was when I was switching between machines. Um, I was I quite frequently saw the error where it says your local version and the remote version are out of sync, and I at times got a little bit nervous about which one of those. Uh, I was keeping because when you get quite a long chapter it can be difficult to see I would have to remember which machine I was on last and whether this was the right version or the other one was the right version Um, but in the end I actually just decided I was just going to write my book on my one laptop to try and remove that noise um, because it got a bit too hard to track so I don't know I think it's because the the web page must save like I don't know why that comes up, but that was something I chose to work around. But for people who are trying to write from different locations, that could be something to look at potentially.
0: Yeah, thanks. Thanks very much for that feedback. Um uh yeah, I've I mean in, in just, you know, well testing myself, I've encountered <laughs> that, that that error um in the in browser editor before. And for those listening, what happens is sometimes there might be um uh a potential difference between, you know, the local version um and you know the version that we've got of a text that's being written in our in browser editor and we offer you, you know, which version do you want to keep? Um just, you know, for any sort of potentially nervous authors listening, we do have a um, versions feature so that every time you create a preview of a LeanPub book, we actually save the text. So, you know, you you don't need to be all that nervous about um, uh, losing text, but as a nervous about losing text person myself, (laughs) I understand. I understand the position you're in when that error gets, gets thrown up. Um, Well, uh, uh, thanks. I just, you know, before we go, I wanted to say, um, Thanks very much for taking the time on your Saturday morning um, to uh, <laughs> be in a Lean Pub podcast. Uh, Katrina, and thanks very much for being a Lean Pub author.
1: No problem. Thanks again for inviting me to talk to you.
0: Thank you.